You turn again in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel in chapter 6. Read again a couple of verses from verse 12, Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was a traitor. Luke, in his gospel narrative, details for us events which typify and illustrate our Lord's ministry. His priority is not a strict sequence, but rather to show us, to show us who the Lord Jesus is and to show us what he's done. And we find that his ministry took place in the context of great enmity. There was a massive hostility. One of the first things that Luke tells us about is our Lord at Nazareth. And it seems to him that that just typifies the whole of his ministry, that our Lord went there to Nazareth, to the place where he was brought up. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he took the scroll, the prophet Isaiah. He found a place, we would call it Isaiah 61, and he clearly identified that he was the Messiah. And they responded with venom and would have destroyed him. And as the narrative of the gospel continues, there are these events which show and confirm that this is indeed who our Lord is, the great promised Messiah, and what is the Messiah he will do in his authority and power over wickedness and as he delivers those from bondage. And again and again, he's confronted with enmity and hatred. He was despised and he was rejected. And what do you do when you encounter enmity and hatred? When you do the right thing, when you do good by people, when you do your best, and when that is, meets with a resentful response, when you're despised, when you're forsaken, how do you respond? What is your reaction? Do you find that you maybe resent those who have treated you so unfairly? Maybe you retreat from them. Maybe you kind of close down and you hide away within yourself. Maybe you think that, well, you should show them. Maybe you're even tempted to find some way of getting your revenge. Maybe even you're tempted sometimes, if it's for the sake of Christ, that the trouble comes, that you might, you might hide away your faith. 
Maybe you wonder if you have the courage to continue to be known as one of the Lord's. What do you do when people treat you unkindly? What do you do when you're despised? What do you do when you're rejected? Matthew Henry has a wonderful comment about these verses. In verse 12 and then through beyond where I stopped to verse 16. But he says, in these verses, we have our Lord Jesus in secret, in his family, and in public, and in all three, acting like himself. When he met with resentment and enmity, when he was despised and he was rejected, he did not divert, but rather he followed his course. There was nothing in his circumstances to encourage him, and yet he was faithful. Whether he was by himself in private in prayer, or whether he was with his family, as Matthew Henry describes it, with the, his immediate disciples, or whether he stood amongst the multitude, we find him acting like himself. There's utter hateful contempt for truth and righteousness and mercy, but he simply does what is right. He is true and he is faithful. But as we look at these verses, I want us to consider what we might call three mysteries. And the first is the mystery of prayer. In verse 12, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. In those days, those days where he encountered such hostility, in those days where there was so much activity, and there were those waiting to hear him, and those waiting to be helped by him, and those waiting to trip him up and to catch him out and to bring him down. He went out into a mountain to pray. Speaks something, doesn't it, of our Lord's humanity. That he sought comfort and strength and fellowship with the Father. He sought the sustaining of the Spirit. We have his voice in Psalm 109. In verse 4, for my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. In the midst of all that enmity, in the midst of all that hostility, he withdrew and he called upon the Father. I suppose you might say, why does he pray when he already has his spirit? If you think back into chapter 3 at the baptism at Jordan, we're told the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. He says that the Lord does not give the Spirit by measure unto him. But the Spirit is the reason why we find such prayer. This is what enables such prayer. He is a delight in the Father, and there's no other comfort to be found in this hostile world. I think the reality is that we're so familiar with the brokenness of this world. But although we find trouble, though we find 
we, we find hostility as we seek to live the Christian life in the midst of a godless generation, that we often find satisfying distraction and we find a degree of comfort just by doing something else, withdrawing and finding something to occupy our time. Our sensitivities are dulled. Our sensitivity is dulled through sin, and we don't have that zeal for holiness, but we find here our Lord, and he sought his satisfaction in the presence of the Father. continued all night in prayer to God. This is how the soul prospers. And without this, the soul does not prosper. Drawing near to God. And if you do not draw near to God, you will not prosper. Your soul will not prosper. You will not be sustained. I know we might say, well, when it comes to prayer, that quality is more important than quantity. Here we're told he spent all night in prayer. You think, well, I can't do that. To spend all night, to spend even a long time. Surely quality is more important than quantity. And there's some truth in that. But surely the frequency of prayer is significant. There's maybe no quality without quantity. Because if we do not often draw near to him, we will be strangers. Do not often draw near to him. Then do we know how to pray? The apostle in Ephesians says we should be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Praying always with all prayer. must learn to pray. The children, you learn to pray because you hear your mother and you hear your father and you learn the words that can be used in prayer and perhaps you repeat a prayer together as a family. And that's legitimate. And that's good. But learning to pray is not simply learning to use what words and to learn the sequence that the words are used in. But learn, rather learning to pray is to learn the freedom of dependence and to develop intimacy with God. That's what prayer is about. It's about confessing utter dependence and experiencing intimacy with God. In the midst of all the busyness, we find our Lord withdrawing alone to spend this time with the Father. It's prior to selecting, to appointing the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. Why was it at night that he prayed? I think the answer is simply that the demands of the day were such that there was no other time that he could have that period uninterrupted when he could enter into his father's presence without the interruptions of those who were asking and those who were demanding and those who were needing his help. He made time.
Perhaps you would agree with me if I said that one of the reasons we don't spend so much time in prayer is we just we don't have the time. But friends, we need to make time. We need to find time. Prayer is not something that you fall into if it's just convenient, but rather there's a discipline. There needs to be a discipline. There needs to be a determination. There needs to be a desire. I said I wanted to speak about the mystery of prayer. It's not so much that our Lord prayed. But what I'm speaking about here is that our Lord, he spent all night in prayer and to his Father. He prayed and he appointed his disciples. And we read the disciples that he appointed. And surely one of the great mysteries is this, that he appointed amongst them Judas Iscariot, he who was or he who became the traitor. And I think the mystery of prayer is this, that proceeding with prayer doesn't eliminate all the troubles and trials. Having a spirit of prayer does not eliminate all the troubles and trials of life. And I say that because there's a temptation when troubles and trials come that we say to ourselves, if only I had prayed first, or if only I'd spent more time in prayer, if only I'd sought the will of the Lord, then I wouldn't have found myself in this situation. And these troubles and these trials would not have come. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have prayed more. And I'm not saying that, yes, you, should have pray, you shouldn't have prayed first. But what we see here is that addressing a situation in prayer doesn't eliminate all the troubles and trials. Our Lord was faithful. Our Lord was righteous. Our Lord is perfect. And he spends his time in preparing to appoint his disciples in fellowship with the Father. He knows the mind of the Father. The Father, and the Son, and the Spirit are of one mind. Prayer doesn't iron out all the wrinkles. It doesn't eliminate all the difficulties. It doesn't prevent all the problems which arise in life. If we don't understand that, then we'll have a wrong understanding of what prayer is. Prayer isn't simply something that you do in order to fix it. But prayer, rather, is about intimacy with God. Prayer doesn't eliminate problems, but rather prayer gives you the right context for the problems which you will encounter in life. It's not about fixing, but it's about fellowshipping. Temptation, isn't it, to come with a long list of issues, a long list of problems, problems that need to be fixed, situations that need to be dealt with. And we're presenting the Lord with all these scenarios, and we're failing maybe to come and to rejoice in Him. 
I'm not saying that you shouldn't address these issues. I'm not saying that you shouldn't confess these problems before him. I'm not saying that you shouldn't ask for his gracious intervention. But the first priority in prayer must be him and your coming before him and your fellowshipping with him. As he calls you to come in prayer, he's not asking you to tell him what he doesn't already know. But he's asking you to come into his immediate presence for your own benefit, for your own blessing, for your own enrichment, for your own encouragement, for your own sustaining. The greatest change that prayer makes is in the person it prays. Prayer doesn't change God, of course, does it? <clears throat> the greatest change that prayer makes is in the person it prays, because if you truly pray, you come before the living God. And you see something of him as he is. And you receive from him in his mercy. And if you come into his presence, and if you see him as he is, and if you receive of him in his mercy, then surely you will be changed. You will not be the same person that you were. Prayer. The grace of God prepares you for all the unexpected of life by bringing you near God in his glory. The Savior is not here praying that his troubles would vanish, but rather that he would be sustained and that he might be faithful in them and through them. Don't misunderstand what I'm trying to bring before you here. I'm not saying that Circumstances never change, and there's never any dramatic intervention. In the mercy of God, sometimes we see dramatic intervention as a consequence of prayer. We see circumstances completely transform. What I'm saying is you need a bigger view of prayer than that. Don't limit it to that. But rather, learn from the Savior. You see something similar in Paul, don't you, in 2 Corinthians and chapter 12. When there's a thorn in the flesh which has troubled him, it perplexes him, and so he repeatedly brings it before the Lord. But that circumstance doesn't change, but what does change is his realization of the sustaining grace of God. And he's rejoicing then in his troubles because he discovers how the grace of God is sufficient for him in all circumstances in that circumstance. You know, the cynic would say, well, I prayed and it doesn't work. I prayed and it did nothing for me. Friends, the Christian, the believer who truly prays, may not see any change in their circumstances. What is it that you find when you pray? You find satisfaction, don't you? You find satisfaction because God is great. And let me say, before I move on from this, that 
if you don't find that satisfaction in prayer, if you've never found that satisfaction in prayer, then you need to make your first prayer this, Lord, in mercy, open my eyes, that I might behold you, that I might see and know who you really are, that I might be brought to embrace your mercy, and I might be delivered from the blindness of sin. There's the mystery of prayer, but I want to speak also about the mystery of the Lord's people. Verse 13, when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. I wonder if without looking at the Bible, if you could name all twelve. I ask you that because... It's not easy to do. And if you were to start by saying, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because these are the easy ones, you're wrong. Because, yes, Matthew is one of them, but Mark wasn't, nor Luke. John is. But it's difficult to name the 12 disciples. Impossible, but it's difficult. Now, that's in part because some have more than one name. Here, we're reminded, of course, that Simon was also named Peter. But there are variations. Simon Zelotes, whereas Matthew and Mark speak of Simon the Canaanite. Luke here speaks about Matthew, but in chapter 5, he refers to him as Levi. Judas, the brother of James, well, Matthew calls him Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Mark calls him simply Thaddeus. Bartholomew, we understand to be the Nathaniel who's referred to at the beginning of John's gospel. It's difficult to name the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. But what I want you to recognize is that the lack of detail about some of them, because some of them are no more than a name really, are they? You could tell me uh, quite a lot about a few of the disciples. Some you would struggle to name. And the reason you would struggle to name them is because we know so little about them, other than maybe their name. But the lack of detail which is recorded here does not equate to a lack of significance. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, in verse 20, and he says, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Peter and then Paul stand to the fore in the narrative of the book of Acts. They stand to the fore, but they didn't stand alone. They all did. In chapter 9, we're told that the Lord gave them power and authority over all devils, and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And we're told they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Who did he give this to? He gave this to his disciples. And they all went, and they all preached, and they all worked great works of wonder. The apostles are messengers. 
but they're not the message. The focus of Scripture is the Savior, and that's one of the reasons why it doesn't focus so much upon the individual messengers. John the Baptist has said, he must increase and I must decrease. And he had no problem with being forgotten, as it were. And there are these individuals who are named here, and they're largely forgotten, but they're not insignificant. Maybe you don't desire recognition in the church. I wonder if you doubt your significance without recognition. But eternity will reveal that the work of the gospel through the faithful ministry of the Church of Christ was the work of the nameless. The Lord works in and through his people without his people coming to the fore. Hebrews, the chapter 11, the chapter of the heroes of the faith. It names so very few, doesn't it? And in verse 32, the writer says, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, and of Samson, and Jephthah, and of David, and of Samuel, and of the prophets. And he goes on and says, and there was others, and there were others, and there were others. And he doesn't even name these others. But he's saying there's all this great cloud of witnesses. There's all those who stood faithful in their own day and generation. But the point isn't to bring them to the fore. But rather, it's to show the gracious mercy of God. Now, Christian biography is very helpful. But sometimes we can be discouraged by it because we're not as great as those individuals that we read about. And we fear, therefore, that we have no part to play in the work of the kingdom or the ministry of the gospel. And that's not true. We are all called to serve. And unless we all serve faithfully, then we're being unfaithful. And the church is not the witness and the testimony that it should be in its own generation. You may be conscious of your need for a minister in this congregation. And it's good for a congregation to have its own settled pastor, undoubtedly. But you all, if you belong to Christ, have a ministry that you should be fulfilling in this congregation and in this community. And whether you have a minister or not, that shouldn't be relevant to the ongoing work of the ministry here. That's the mystery of his people. That we're not all called to stand at the front. We're all, all given names that will be remembered, but we're called by him to serve. Twelve disciples. But actually, those twelve disciples were selected out of a greater number of disciples, about whom we know even less. One or two names, some of the men, some of the women. But we don't even know how many there were. But all these names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Invisible in this world, but not invisible to the Lord and given a ministry, called to serve and to live for his glory. 
Don't fear being a nobody, but don't doubt the significance of nobodies in the work of the kingdom. Don't wait for the Lord to send somebody. Because some of the greatest problems that the church has experienced is when somebody thinks they are somebody. See here the mystery of prayer, and then we can think a little bit the mystery of his people. But maybe thirdly and finally, we can speak a little bit the mystery of providence. He chose 12 whom he also named Apostle Simon. He also named Peter and Andrew's brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotus, Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Surely we're confronted here with the mystery of providence. That the Lord appointed his disciples. He called them. He made them apostles. And the Lord who knows the heart. In verse 8, he revealed the accusing heart of the Pharisees. The Lord who knows the heart called and appointed Judas Iscariot. John and his gospel said that the Lord had no need that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He prayerfully considered and he prayerfully appointed these men, including Judas Iscariot. No one else suspected. Judas, as you know, was left to look after their common purse, to look after the money. Why? Because he was obviously, or apparently, trustworthy. Everyone else was convinced by Judas. Toward the end of his ministry, when our Lord said, and one of you shall betray me, nobody turned around and said, that'll be Judas then. When he sent out his disciples to preach, and to perform these great works in his name. They all went out, and they all preached, and they all performed these great works in his name. They cast out devils, and they performed other mighty works. And Judas was amongst them. How could that be? How could it be that this man who was a hypocrite, this man who was not converted, how could he remain with them? And how could he be so like them? Well, it seems that he conformed. He wasn't converted. He was a man of action, not a man of affection. He was committed to an idea, but he wasn't committed to the individual. He wasn't committed to the Lord Jesus. It's a mystery of providence, isn't it? It's hard to understand. It's hard to make sense of it all. In the list we have of the disciples, Judas' name is always given last. And as you read through the list of the disciples, when you come to his, you're left. You're left reeling almost. You think, this, this just isn't right. 
He shouldn't be there. He's so out of place. But we have to acknowledge that God has a purpose. And it's a profound mystery, but it's not a mistake. It was not a mistake. It says in Psalm 76 that surely the very wrath of man shall praise thee. See here her Lord, not only does he deal so patiently with those who rise up against him, but he does not fear his enemies. He does not fear to have one even that close to him. We can't explain everything, but we have to acknowledge that there's not any, there is a perfection rather in this imperfection. The mystery of providence. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, we can see something of God's purpose here, can't we? We understand. We understand something about his purpose. That Judas was appointed to be there. He was permitted to be there. And the part that Judas had to play. You look back, some things make sense or begin to make sense. Do you know, we should be able to look forward with the same confidence. You can look back and say God had a purpose. But we should be able to look forward with the same confidence and say God has a purpose. We've heard the expression that providence is like Hebrew, you read it backwards. The reality is the believer by faith should be able to look forward with absolute confidence in the wisdom and the gracious purpose of God. That doesn't mean that you're to be passive in the all the circumstances of your life. That doesn't mean you're to be indifferent to things that are wrong. You have a responsibility to deal with wrong as much as it lies with you. James reminds us, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We're to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. We're to pray for his gracious intervention. But having done all, we're to rest in the sovereignty of God. To rest in the sovereignty of God. And not be distracted from our own individual responsibility to live for his glory. You know, it's easy, isn't it, sometimes to point at to problems, unresolved problems, and to be so taken up with the need that these problems are resolved that we somehow forget 
our own part. You know, nothing excuses your inactivity. There may be much that you don't understand. There may be much that's perplexing and overwhelming. But today, you're to rejoice in the Lord. Today, you're to serve him faithfully. We find here the mystery of prayer. The prayer doesn't eliminate all the difficulties, but rather it draws us into the presence of God that we might be sustained in and through whatever difficulties we might experience. See the mystery of his people. But although we may be completely overlooked and ignored that we are not insignificant and we're called to serve him today. And in the mystery of his providence, that although this day looks so dark and difficult, that God is upon the throne. The Lord reigns. There is no change in his authority. There is no change in his power. His purposes are not being hindered. The Lord is faithful, and this is the working of his faithfulness, and he has called you to serve him here and now. It's tempting to think, well, it would have been good to serve him in days gone by when circumstances were different. But this is where he has you. And in the midst of it all, we are to be looking to him. And what do you do when people don't treat you with respect that maybe you feel you might deserve, or at least treat the gospel that you speak about with respect that it's most certainly deserves? What do you do when people treat you badly? What do you do when people are unfaithful? Do you resent it? Do you hold back? Do you hide away? Do you leave them alone? Our Lord, Matthew Henry, said, we see him acting just like himself. He wasn't diverted from his course, but he's faithful. He's faithful whether he's alone, he's faithful whether he's within his family, or he's faithful whether he's in public. And that's the calling that is placed upon your life today, to be faithful before God as you stand as an individual with him in private, to be faithful in the family home, and to be faithful in public. A conscious dependence upon God. You're to go out, to live your life day by day, moment by moment. You can't put it all together. You can't make sense of it all. You can't understand how and what part this has to play in the great providence of God. But you're still to just be faithful in that moment, in that place. It's wonderful how this passage goes on. It says in the beginning of verse 17, and he came down with them. The Lord was in the midst of his church. And that's so today. The Lord 
is with us. Seek his grace, that you might have been able to see that, to realize that, and to live in the light of that. Amen. Let's pray together. O oh Lord our God, we pray that we might be made wise, that we might be instructed by your word, that we might be delivered from our wrong ideas. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might be delivered from our unfaithfulness. We pray that we might be set free from our uh, fear of man. We pray that we might be given a liberty to serve you in the situations in which we find ourselves. Gracious God, be pleased to be our strength. Be pleased to be our song. Be pleased to give us joy and peace in believing. Deliver us from unbelief. Deliver us from hesitancy. Deliver us from forgetfulness. Oh, gracious one, be pleased to make us fit and useful instruments in your hands. Be pleased to overrule in all things for your own glory. Granting that we would not be forgetful hearers, but doers of the word. And that we might each this day rejoice in the abundant mercy of God and the gospel. For we ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen.